بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد We express a praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala We seek blessings on the Prophet peace be upon him Continuing Shahab Ahmad We are on page 98 As with philosophy Who's reading? Uh, as with philosophy It is not merely that Sufism reads the text of the Quran esoterically Rather Sufism subjects the concept of the Quran To the demands of a total truth matrix mm-hmm. Elaborated by the Gnostic discipline and experience wherein experiential haqiqah is the higher truth and prescriptive sharia the lower truth okay this is a big heavy sentence truth matrix yeah what is truth matrix it's not something you can look up in the dictionary so so a couple things all right so like the hierarchies of the i guess whatever no higher truth lower truth so essentially, the, the way I'm reading this is sort of that, but the idea being basically that, okay, so the first part is, uh, it's one thing to read the Quran esoterically, meaning looking for internal meanings, okay? Mm-hmm. But he's saying what the Sufis are doing, they're saying that the Quran has to fulfill this purpose where everything, the whole package is guiding to truth, okay? Which in principle is not really all that... All that um, uh, um, radical, except truth here is synonymous with reality. Yeah. So every ayah is supposed to be, so So if you replace truth matrix with reality matrix, every ayah should be guiding you to reality. Hakika. Yeah. Experiential reality. And that is the higher truth and sharia is the lower truth. Uh, the, uh, the part of hakika being the higher truth, sharia is the lower truth, is, is also not really that radical unless you're bypassing the Sharia. So Orthodox Sufis will say that you have to start with the Sharia, and through the Sharia, you start developing the Haqiqah. Right? So through the law, you start uh, reaching into reality. Why? Because the law is basically acts of obedience to Allah. And so how are you going to connect to Allah if you're overriding Allah? Okay. Um, there are some Sufis who bypass the Sharia, saying we're going straight to the Haqiqah. Right? And a lot of times these two groups are at odds with each other. But the key point being that it's, it's, uh, it's giving the intention. So like in some ideal sense, we want the Quran to give us our intention and then to guide us. And the, the approach he's saying that Sufis want is, okay, Alif Lam Mim, how are you teaching me about reality? And then this book, there's no, uh, no doubt guides for those that talk about how are, what are you teaching me about reality? Okay. So they have a conscious lens. But it may be that everybody has lens anyway. Um, how do the people, those who um, uh, um, justify avoiding Sharia or subverting Sharia in favor of Hafeza, how do they justify that? So essentially, some some will say that Sharia is for the masses. Okay. So the, philosoph- the philosophical. I like the philosophers, and and Hafeza is for those people who want to aim higher. Right. Um, or that Sharia is important for social order, okay. but to connect to God, the main thing you need is Hafiqa. So, yeah. okay, let's continue. Uh, the respective projects of Sohrawardian philosophy of, of illumination and the Akbarian unity of existence both read the Quran and, in the latter case, also the Hadith in a manner in which the text of the counterintuitive to the text. Uh, oh. oh, wait. In which the text of the revelation is made subject to the demands of a cosmo- cosmology so apparently counterintuitive to the text as to make the meaning of the text of the Quran appear dependent on that cosmology rather than that cosmology dependent on the text of the Quran. Okay, so you see the point again. They're coming in with the lens in advance and looking at the Quran through that lens specifically and trying to figure out how the Quran fits into that mold. I'd say to some degree everybody actually does this, uh, whether we realize it or not. Uh, that when I'm looking at the Quran, I'm looking at it through my lens, and I may not realize that I have a lens, right? I feel like I'm looking at it organically or authentically, but I do have a lens that's that's informed by my own education, my own life experiences, and such, and which means that I'm going to be giving priority to some things and less priority to other things. Um, and not realize that that might not line up with, with what the Quran is doing. Okay. And so I think to some degree everybody does this. And, but here he's speaking of it as a whole conscious methodology. Can we define cosmology? Cosmology is basically your, your outlook of the whole world. 
the whole universe. Yeah. And so cosmology, ontology are basically this whole idea of just what is the big picture. Yeah. So cosmology is the same word cosmos is coming from. Yeah. <coughs> I think ontology would have been a better word for him to use at that point anyway. And so this, uh, this whole worldview. And so illumination philosophy is this idea that you are being exposed to more and more light as you get closer to Allah. And Akbar is essentially you are becoming more and more unified with Allah as you're getting closer and closer to Allah. Yeah. Unity of existence. Unity of existence is a very controversial uh, outlook. Uh, if, you, if you've gone through Reza Aslan's recent book, or, uh, History of God or whatever it's called, like he talks about polytheism, and the polytheism gets sort of, uh, overtaken by um, the monotheism of Christianity of Judaism, which then gets overtaken by the monotheism of Christianity, which then gets overtaken by the monotheism of Islam, and then gets overtaken by universal unity of existence, where you become part of God, right? And the book is okay. I mean, it's um, he, he's fast and loose with the rules, or fast and loose with history as it fits his outlook. Mm -hmm. But that's the point he's making. Yeah. All right, continue. Uh, it is not that this hermeneutic in, ignores divine and prophetic texts, but rather it appropriates them by reading them against the apparent divine grain. The locus classicus being Ibn Arabi's exegesis of the Quranic narrative of the idols of Noah's people. Yeah, I don't know that narrative. <coughs> but think of it a different way. Suppose I want to say the Quran supports capitalism. Okay. Then I'm going to go through and find all the ayahs that support that and read many ayahs to support it. Right? That's basically what he's saying here. That to support their outlook, that's how they that's how they approach the Quran. Right. And he's saying that's what Ibn Arabi does, which is which is interesting. I think a lot of followers of Ibn Arabi would disagree. Uh, a lot of followers of the thought of Ibn Arabi would basically say Ibn Arabi goes super deep into the Quran. Um, but essentially, the idols of Noah's people, I suspect that's basically what you find in Ibn Arabi's text is everything becomes uh, sort of metaphor. So the idols of Noah's people, he, the idols of Noah's people, he's probably speaking of it, not just his physical idols, but some other metaphorical things. That's my educated guess. Okay, let's continue. Similarly, the poetical and narrative fiction texts, such as the Divan of Hafiz, which we are conditioned to think of as not constructive of normative Islam, also actively engage with and make normative claims by their own hermeneutical engagement with the phenomenon and the language of Mohammedan revelation. Hafiz is, like Muhammad, the tongue of the unseen. His divan is the image of the Quran. His book is a source of prophecy. Okay. So Hafiz is this other poet. So in contrast to Rumi, where Rumi tends to be very, very orthodox, Hafiz tends to be very unorthodox in the stuff that he says, right? That's the first part of what, what Shahab Ahmad is saying here, that we are conditioned to think is not constructive of normative Islam, meaning basically it's not orthodox. Yeah. And let's see. Um, and yeah, I don't get the point that he's making for the rest of the sentence. So everyone's, everyone else's guess is as good as mine. By their own hermeneutical. Similarly, the poetical and narrative fiction texts, such as which we are conditioned to think of not as not constructive of normative Islam, also actively <coughs> and make normative claims by their own hermeneutical engagement. Okay, okay, okay. So he's saying basically, uh, we spoke about what hermeneutics is before, right? Method of interpretation, scriptural interpretation. So he's saying even the works of poetry also do the same thing that the schools of philosophy do and the schools of the Sufis do. That they're engaging with the text uh, with a particular vision in mind. And they're showing, or they're making the Quran fit into their vision of text. Yeah. But I don't know if the rest of his sentence kind of fits that point. Is he, is, are you saying that the poet looks at the Quran that way, or that people look at the poetry that way? I've, I'm getting the impression that, that the poet looks at the Quran that way. Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like he's saying this is what all the different schools do, right? Except perhaps the schools of law. Yeah. But he may say that also. Okay, let's continue. 
The social institutionalization of figural painting and wine drinking must then be understood as the conceptual and practical subordination of the normative value rulings of the hermeneutic of Islamic law to the normative value rulings of these other hermeneutics. Other hermeneutics that allow for the enactment on earth of God's order to be symbolized on the coin of the realm by a wine cup clasped in the hand of God's vice chairman on earth. Okay. Or, yeah, vice chairman. That's a gigantic boxcar sentences. All right. So the social institutionalization of figural painting and wine drinking must then be understood. Ah, got it. Okay, so, so he's saying, okay, the Sufis have their own method of approaching the Quran. The philosophers have their own method. The poets have their own method of approaching the Quran. Therefore, that's what we should also say about these people that are drawing figures or these people who focus on, on wine drinking and make it into a religious act. Because remember, we were saying that the kings would have these cups of wine and it would have like eyes of the Quran on it, right? And so he's saying, so then to be fair, we should also assume they actually have an approach to the Quran, their own approach that we would have to try to discover. You look like you're processing something. I don't have a specific thought, just general processing. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay, let's continue. There would appear indeed to be much to recommend Giorgio Levi Della Vida's pungent remark, the late motive, late motive of the religious history of Islam is the desperate attempt to get rid of the rigid literalism of the Quran. Okay, that's an interesting point, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so one approach to the Quran is to be very literal, but if you look at the way Islam has been practiced throughout Islamic history, uh, throughout Muslim history, it's, it seems as though most of it is not taking the Quran literally. Right. And that's what this uh, quote is saying. Okay. But Levi uh, Della Vida is off target in attributing literalism to the text of the Quran. Rather, it is more accurate to say that the history of Islam is characterized by the development of a range of complex hermeneutical apparatuses and trajectories whereby more or less literal modes of reading have developed, emerged, and presented themselves in social and intellectual array to be taken up by Muslims as means and terms of engagement with the truths of revelation. Okay. So what's he saying in that <clears throat> sentence? The literalism is a more... Is, it has, it's been developed... and it, They developed, emerged, and presented themselves... Um, basically, that literalism wasn't, isn't inherently in the Quran, basically. Okay, so that's part of it. And what else? That all these different approaches are Ways approaching the Quran. Engage the truth. Right. Yeah, they're all engaging with the Quran using their own methods. So a way to think about this is that, okay, so we have, you know, people put uh, Quranic calligraphy uh, on their walls and stuff. Uh, one approach would be like when we discussed in the secularism uh, um, uh, book, that it's it's... You know, you're just using ornamentation, using the Quran as a way of ornamentation where you're not really practicing it. Okay. Another way to say is that one of the ways that Muslims engage with the Quran is by uh, appreciating even the style of writing it. Okay. And so, in a way, what Shahab Ahmad's doing, which is interesting, is that he's giving respect to all these different approaches that people have had to, to Islam. And he's saying there is a logic there, right? a logic that we can search for and figure out. All the different things that Muslims do that that they stamp with religious a religious flavor. <coughs> okay, continue. For it is important to note that the range of hermeneutical opportunities and their contrary constructions of Islam described above were socially alive and active. They presented themselves constantly to Muslims and the people they met, in the texts they read, the practices they enacted, and the ideas they encountered from those people and texts and practices. The historical challenge for Muslims has been in engaging re relationally, that is, intertextually and inter-epistemologically, with themselves and each other across this hermeneutical array. Okay. So, I mean, I think he's making more of the same point. So, for it is important to note that the range of hermeneutical opportunities and their contrary constructions of Islam described above were socially alive. Okay, so that's the one key point. That this is stuff that is going on and it's active. Okay. And... We see this, so then he says, uh, where'd it go? They presented themselves constantly to Muslims and the people they met, the texts they read, the practices they enacted, and the ideas they encountered from those people. It's almost like he's saying the Quran is, is, is throughout the whole culture. It's just that people are approaching it very differently. Right? 
that it's in the air, it's in everything. So, and then it's even in aspects of life that seem to contradict each other, right? Or that contradict a literal, a literal reading of the Quran. Okay. You have a thought? And like just connecting it to like Christianity, I feel like that's because we don't have a central authority to tell us like what is what is right, you know, mm -hmm. right? Because that's an interesting point. So you're saying because we don't have a central authority, then people are are pushing the Quran all kinds of different ways. Yeah, they're free yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I think it's pretty insightful. Okay, let's continue. That's the great Ibn Rushd. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry, that other sentence. Wait. The historical challenge for Muslims has been engaging relationally. Uh, that is a sentence that you guys should highlight and memorize. The historical challenge for Muslims has been in engaging relationally, right? Meaning, how do we have an operational community? How do we have a community that works? And so, you know, related to, to Shazad's point, Shazad, the thief. Okay, so related to Shazad's point, um, you have, with the church, you have the central authority that is defining everything, and everything becomes an extension of that. But for us, uh, our Islam is defined by the community. And so the historical challenge has been to figure out how do we have a whole community that operates, you know, when everyone talks about unity and diversity and all that stuff. That's been our challenge. How do you make it all work? As opposed to falling into a whole bunch of sects. Yeah. Um, <coughs> are you saying that um, the challenge is navigating within one community or between communities? I, I'm saying uh, to try to make... So, so if we're in one geographic location, mm -hmm. how to make that one community? Okay. And the fact that he says intertextually and inter-epistemologically uh -huh. is that between I was I, I understood that as like between different understandings of, of Islam that's how I would take it yeah so like different yeah. communities so different so for example in Chicago mm -hmm. um, you have you have different types of Sunnis mm -hmm. you have different types of Shias mm -hmm. then you have Ahmadis you have the Nation of Islam you have all kinds of other people uh, but by and large you would almost look at each of these as different religions Okay. Thus, mm -hmm. different communities. Okay. But they're all self-identifying as Muslim. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, is it possible for, you know, more engagement? Yeah. Beyond just, you know, an intra-faith dialogue, but mm -hmm. an actual, you know, vibrant community. Right. You have it on Devon. I mean, everybody shops at Devon regardless of what they are. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you do have it in the market. Uh, and you may have it uh, to some degree on campus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like here, for example, like the Ismaili students don't really you know, get involved with the MSA. Mm -hmm. you know? The Ahmadi students don't really get involved with the MSA and such. Um, and so how do you get a big, you know, very, very diverse, interactive community? Yeah. Um, in terms of the context of this book and background in that, in that time period and in that region, um, wouldn't one understanding of Islam be concentrated in one place and a different understanding be concentrated in a different place? Is there... Was, is there a crossover like there is in Chicago as in terms of contact with other... Americans? I mean, my guess is that historically the Muslim cities were probably not unlike what you have here in Chicago. Okay. Right, whereas villages were probably a lot more homogeneous. Okay. Right, but cities are places where, where you have people just crossing through. Mm -hmm. And and so there I'd, I'd suspect you have um, all kinds of different approaches. Okay, okay. let's continue. Thus, the great Ibn Rushd Averroes was on one, the one hand the chief judge of Cordoba administrating the revealed law, and on the other hand a philosopher writing on the hierarchy of truth, where law, as we have seen, ranked down the scale. The Istanbuli intellectual Khatib Celebi himself called himself a Hanafi by legal madhab, but an Ishraqi, that is a Sorawardian illuminationist by dis disposition, Mashrab, while the non Perel? Perel? No idea. While the non-Pareil 19th century Urdu and Persian poet of Delhi, Mirza Asadullah Khan Ghalib, who stands in canonical relation to Urdu lit literature as does Shakespeare to English, pro pro proclaimed with blithe irony, these 
conundra, these the conundra of Sufism, and these, O Ghalib, your solutions for them. We would have acknowledged you a saint were it not for your wine drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he has a lot of those. Yeah, so, so you see the point that in the same person you'll have one approach to law, a different approach to philosophy, a different approach to, to spirituality. And that's how a lot of this stuff uh, crosses over. So you can have someone who is Sunni in terms of their Islamic law, and then, you know, they have this philosophical approach to to how they look at the world and such. And, um, so essentially what, uh, what Shahab Ahmad is saying is that all these pe- different uh, outlooks are uh, found in single people, which I think is also very true of the modern era. That we have multiple identities. All right, let us continue. Halibs, irony, oh. not from me is unrivaled. By me. Unrivaled. Thank you. Uh, very nice. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Halibs, right. irony in this couplet, which is appreciated by the audience of his peers, is of course directed at those who are unable to reconcile the apparent contradiction of his capacity, on the one hand, to resolve the conundrum of Sufism and the genius of his verse, something that only a wali, a friend of God, a saint, should be able to do while on the other hand being a notorious wine drinker. Bala's point here is is that there is no real contradiction here, something that had been bluntly stated by Jalaluddin Rumi himself six centuries earlier when he was asked about the wine drinking of his beloved Shams Tabriz. Mm-hmm. One day the jealous jurist, out of stubbornness and denial, asked Maulana whether wine is permitted, halal or forbidden, haram. They were targeting the pure honor of Shams Molana answered with a metaphor, saying, It depends on who drinks it, for if a wineskin is poured into the river, the river remains unchanged and will not be polluted. Okay. It is remitted to perform ablutions for prayer with that water and to drink it. Oh, snap. But in the case of a small basin, even a drop of wine will certainly render it impure. In the same way, whatever falls into the salty sea is overcome by the rule of salt. The straightforward answer is that if Molana Shams Aldin drinks it, for him everything is permitted. Mubah. Since the rule of the river applies. Whereas if someone like you, your sister's a whore, oh, even oh. barley is forbidden, haram. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah. That's a serious case. <laughs> and you said the salty sea. Damn, rule of salt. I'm going to use that. The rule of salt has overcome the river. So, so this, this raises the question then. You know, back to the point of the view that Sharia... You know, the Sharia is for the masses. Does the Sharia apply to everybody? So the default opinion in our community is, yeah, it does. But they're arguing, no, it doesn't. There's some people who are above the Sharia. Even Rumi argues that as well? Well, I mean, Rumi seems to be saying something like that. (laughs) I mean, what's interesting is that um, in in the Desi community, there's a lot of talk about Ghalib and his drinking. But probably because he also writes poetry about it. But nobody, t- everyone loves Iqbal, who also drank. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Could he have just been defensive about, you know, his friend and not wanting to, like, expose him? I mean, it's possible that he's not saying it's okay to drink. It's possible that he is, uh, you know, giving a defense. Right. Um, that, I mean, because I mean, he starts off by saying jealous jurists. Right. So, I mean, man, this is, I love how like even in these beautiful uh, sort of realms, beef is always present. It's just like <laughs> your sister's a whore, you're jealous, everybody, the rules of salt. Like I'm just like, man, Ruby, Ruby sounds so nice. Otherwise, yeah. you know, this is the same guy who's like who's saying all that like, beautiful stuff. Could easily be like a Twitter war, just like yep. each of these, like jealous. I, I have like a mind to like go on. Yeah, like I have a mind to like be like. The real oh, Rumi. You know, you know, you, you, and I'm putting this stuff out there, man. Yeah, it's just be... put, quote, your sister's a whore, Rumi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and then put it on like someone else's yeah. page that has a sister. <laughs> you know? Okay, oh. I'm not going that far. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, all right, continue. I heard Rumi's point, and I asked the reader to forgive our sovereign master's tendency to do to the occasional expletive <laughs> when exerting his arguments, is that there is a hierarchy of truth and of the norms of truth whereby the claims to universal authority 
of the legal discourse of halal and haram simply do not apply universally. The value rule of the small basin does not apply to the flowing river. In Rumi's conception, two opposite truths obtain here at the same time in spatial and social differentiation, and both are Islam. For Rumi and all those who invoke him as Maulana, Shamsi Tabriz, who is effectively Rumi's Maulana, is certainly no less a Muslim than is the jealous jurist. Yeah, so what do you think? Um, <laughs> Shaking your head. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to leave that to the side. Okay. So he says, no less, certainly no less a Muslim. And this whole book is about, you know, everyone's a Muslim, right? And this is all a description of Muslim behavior. Okay. Um, but, like, think of it devotionally. Like, <coughs> there's definitely a spectrum of, of like, of Iman, right? Okay. Did, how, like, what was their perception of, you know, for example, wine drinking on that spectrum? Did that reduce Iman? Or was that something that was negative towards Iman? Or was that something that was... Well, I mean, something is a sin... Something is the same would reduce the amount of right, right. Like, okay. So that would be from a Sharia perspective. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. For these jealous jurists, yeah. Yeah, for the jurists. Uh, but for them, the notion is probably that, all right, if I drink some wine, it lowers my inhibitions, which makes it easier for me to get closer to God. Right. That could be one way to rationalize it. All right, y'all, let's smoke weed after that. Okay. <laughs> Dutch weed. Not... Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I, for me, it's it's like I mean, obviously, I think I I don't I don't agree with anyone sort of trying to comment on um, on Shamsuddin Shamsuddin's like sort of iman or where he's at. I think that's uh, obviously out of bounds. Yeah, but then I also don't think like you know I think like if, I think it's like there's like a even prior to all this like why would you even bother about that? Like you get yeah. what I'm saying? It's like that's what he he's dealing with. That's his sin. You kind of uh-huh. like leave it. You know uh-huh. what I'm saying? And but, like, I think, like, for me, like, I don't know if I buy the metaphor or, like, the, okay. the, the analogy he makes, per se. Okay. I think it's it works. Uh-huh. It works with the, the, the analogy, but uh-huh. I don't know if that translates to, like, people. Okay, so, you know? so in terms of, like, you know, like, that's his sin, what if you find out that some celebrity preacher, you know, uh, partakes of wine? What do you think? I mean, for me, I think, like, it's like... It's like, I think when we found out about this other stuff, it's just like, well, okay, we kind of know you're more human now, you know? Okay. And it, it's, I I wouldn't say, like, I think for me, it's not like, it's it's kind of like, you you know, you separate, like, you know, your weakness from whatever good you brought. I don't think whatever good you brought is tainted to some, okay. you know, I, I mean, it, I don't think it's like, yeah, I don't think it's like something, oh, I don't go there, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? I mean, obviously... Actually, I think I think it's like it's ultimately you're gonna I think anyone who engages that unless you're some like, you know, amazing soul or whatever, like you're gonna think about that. Like even if you're going to his like good stuff or whatever mm-hmm. he did, mm-hmm. that's gonna be in the back of your head. Like that's always gonna mm-hmm. be there. But I think like that shouldn't stop you from taking the good from it. Okay. You know? Okay. And I think like that doesn't for me, like I mean I don't know, like that. That's like the realm of God. Like I'm not gonna go into like where he's at or whatever. But from you know, I don't know. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Y'all think about this. Well, I mean, putting aside like today's stuff, I feel like back then their whole conception of sin was different than how we conceive of sin right now. Explain. Um. Well, like to, like superficially, like the things that we consider sin and not sins to them. Or they, they rationalize them as not sin. Or as not detracting from your connection to God. Oh, that's probably a better way to put it, yeah. So, um... Yeah, so who's they? Like, these people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, this guy. Okay, that guy. Okay, Rumi, okay. Yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, but then I... Like, I think that's the other... that That's one thing I've noticed about... Like, I think I was thinking about, about his, like, his sort of claims is... I think you really need... Like, there's a lot of historical claims that are kind of, like... Or sort of assumptions that I don't I don't want to call them assumptions I don't know what like research you did to back it up but it seems to be a there's like a in the text you read there's like a lot of historical assumptions on like yeah I think you talked about this when we started the book about like the number of people who like partake in you know who took in these things and things like that so I think that obviously has some value as well right so if it's like a minor part of the community doing it mm-hmm. I mean on one lens you, you can kind of say well yeah you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying I think that you have to bring that to the argument, right? Mm-hmm. You have to bring it to... Yeah, know. I mean, my guess is that it's uh, the elite, um, you know, that we would find, like the, the aristocracy. Yeah. 
and then you know so you'd find it in in sufi circles and such right I, i'm just saying like yeah. i don't know like so it's for me yeah. so it's hard for me to like you know like like he's he's kind of like telling you to follow along this and i'm just like well i don't i i don't know if i can i have to kind of just like well i mean uh i'd suggest that uh it may not be as difficult because he's not saying this is what's going to get you to heaven right yeah i mean he said at the book this is not what's uh, i'm not looking at what's going to get salvation Mm. i'm looking at how did muslims define themselves right Mm. throughout history it could be that everything that's in this book uh is describing people who will get accepted and go to heaven, or it yeah. could be that all these people are going to go to hell. Yeah. Right? Uh, he's not addressing that question. Well, I mean, I, I don't mean in the sense of that. Like, I don't mean in the sense of following him in the sense of that. I just mean in the sense of, like, he's making, like, historical claims. You, you could say that, right? Like, Yeah, sure. Yeah, so for me, like, I don't know if I'm... Like, I don't know if I see enough history to sort of, you know... Maybe I'm not reading it right, you know? I mean, I think it is consistent with what you find in a lot of history, a lot of Islamic history books. Yeah. Like, you can't make up a quote like this, right? No, 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 I'm not saying... No, you're... you're, Okay, that's fine. Yeah, but... I'm not saying, like, the hate this is a false quote. I I don't think he's misrepresenting history. That's what I'm saying. Hmm, okay. I mean, history history books are always going to be picking and choosing. Yeah. Um, uh, But... Uh, it doesn't strike me that he's misrepresenting, except when he doesn't say, okay, this is uh, of an overall population, this seems to be a fringe population, right? Yeah, I guess, I don't know, I, maybe that maybe that's where, where my sort of sure. issue is, like, I, I guess what's unsaid is mm-hmm. also, you know, yeah, that's problematic, right. you know, because I think, like, that's this is what we seem to focus on, right? In my head, I'm like, well, these, and again, what do I know, but I'm, this is sort of, like, where I'm leaning is, like, these seem to be very niche sort of groups yeah. you know across the board mm-hmm. you know? that do define themselves as pious yeah and right. and and for me i was like well there might be other niche groups that define themselves as pious too and mm-hmm. you know I, I mean it just seems to be a competition of sorts can be yeah i mean not like what we have today yeah yeah <laughs> very much so okay the thing is he says that these are all normative practices though mm-hmm. as in like these are like widespread and maybe they're normative among the elites or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I mean. Like normative amongst whom? Right. You know, like I, I don't know. That's where I guess where I'm. You know. Well, I mean, Rumi is definitely read, right, by everybody. Yeah. And so, and even today, a lot of qawalis are all about you know, about wine drinking. Yeah, you yeah. Know, theoretically, yeah. it's metaphor. Like and even all that. yeah, even our yeah, like our scholars, you know, are all about Rumi. And it's funny too, like even our scholars use like drinking metaphors. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, your friend uh, Faraz Ravani does that a lot. Really? Know it. Like okay. he, he quotes Rumi, and like I've noticed, like I'm not saying this is a trend or anything. I'm just like this is what I remember. Like you know, he'll like talk about like the intoxication of the believer or something mm-hmm. like that. You know. Yeah. It doesn't seem like that scandalous to me, only because. Like, we could list a hundred Muslims in this room right now that are, like, very pious and everyone look at as pious and then watch Netflix shows or HBO shows with, like, nudity. Mm. Like, that's someone that you, like, you know, you are not married to and you're seeing all of that and they're like, well, it's only for that one scene or I, like, try not to focus on it. Like, the show's really good. Mm. I I used to get people who were were anti-music with that stuff when I was a kid. (laughs) Because they would always come at me, like, music's around. I'm like, what do you mean? You guys, like... You watch TV, you play video games, you all that stuff. Like, there's, there's <laughs> but that's different. Like, if you were to maybe ask someone back then, like, how many people that you're not married to have you seen, like, all of them? They'd be like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. That's mm-hmm. like such they're a like, you sinner. And you're yeah. like, huh, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so, that'd be an interesting point. Uh, I would agree with that if Shams is not writing poetry about his wine, which he may not be, right? If it's something that he's partaking of that he shouldn't, then yeah, I'd say it's the same analogy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's also like you, you, you get into this this idea. I think that's I don't know. That seems to be sort of like Islamic sort of rule is is like this idea of displaying. Yeah, you're saying. Yeah, it's always I think for us has been problematic. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, that'd be more like the Ghalib thing. Yeah. Right. So Iqbal doesn't seem to write about wine drinking. Yeah. Right. Um, Ghalib does. Right, yeah. I mean, Ghalib, seems but then they're be. they're both kind of like equally beloved. So mm-hmm. interesting. The community mm-hmm. doesn't seem to care about that. I mean, I think uh, um, Ghalib is more like the poet for the people who are less pious, and yeah. Iqbal is more the poet for the people who are. Yeah, pious. like people. Oh, okay. sorry. No, no, you guys. Okay, people so, get mad. Speaking of like the normativity of this whole practice. Yeah. Um, we're saying that this is an elite practice, right? And it's it might be normative among the elites, but 
the masses are getting their. We talked about yeah. how they get their they get their because they're getting from Rumi, right? Mm-hmm. So they're also then getting this, this 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 conception of mm-hmm. you know quote unquote sin. Um, so maybe it is like entirely. It could be widespread. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know. All right. Shall we continue? Uh, it is in such it is in such vivid and intimate terms as the foregoing personal engagements with the contradictory possibilities of truth and meaning that we must try to understand what Alexander Knish has with an awareness all too rarely evidence in both modern western scholarship and in the discourses of modern Muslims rightly called the dazzling diversity of Muslim religious life the intrinsic pluralism and complexity characteristic of the religious life of the Muslim community, where disparate ideas and concepts, bits and pieces of creeds and doctrines circulated freely and were thus easily available in, to individual believers who passed them into a ragtag hole of Weltschong. Weltschong. Although I prefer the image of a rich, complex, but coherently patterned carpet to that of a ragtag patchwork. Okay, so this is describing the experience of Islam in America. Right? Sorry? So this is... This is totally Islam in America. Yeah. That you're growing up as Muslim, and then you have a little bit of reverence for, for Muhammad Ali, you have reverence for whoever the current popular celebrity preachers are, you have a little bit of influence of your Sunday school, you have a little bit of influence of your own ideas and stuff, and it becomes a full worldview, but uh, it could be just you know, this ragtag collection. right? It's not a unified whole. And so that could be all of Islam, this Muslim history. I remember you, you mentioned this point when we were talking about the whole uh, community aspect of it, about how us sort of performing better as a whole, right? Is my question I was thinking about, like, is that something to be desired, though? Or could we just sort of work, you know, maybe be, I guess, functional or be, perform just fine being our little, you know, like got a little individual. Little Separately bit, just, from the community? Yeah. Um, I would default uh, in favor of, of involvement with the community. Mm-hmm. That could just be me, right? Yeah. I guess my, the way I, I was thinking about it is, but isn't that also a interpretation, like this yeah. idea of holding fast to the... That's, I mean... I mean isn't that like a one, the, I guess, one thread of interpretation? The, the, the people who would really love this book would say every approach to Islam is an interpretation, Yeah. right? Even the so-called orthodoxy is just an interpretation. Yeah. Right? Potentially. You know, the orthodoxy is say, okay, it's not simply just an interpretation. you got to come up with something stronger. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but I would say that, you know, uh, that your approach to Islam should involve the community. Mm. You, know, you know? In whatever capacity. Yeah. I mean, I still totally acknowledge that, you know, as much as I can, I hide in my cave here. Yeah. Right? And I have the Loyola community, so to speak, but um, uh, but still, uh, I I still default to the outlook that you are part of a community. Yeah. Right. No. Okay. Let's continue. Whether we characterize the making of a Muslims Welchung Welton, wait, how do you say it? Weltanschauung. Weltanschauung as an act of patching, weaving, or knotting. The point is that Islam, of course, in the first semantic instance, action and activity by the individual being. Islam is, of course, in the first semantic instance, action and activity by the individual being. The word Islam, as straightforwardly stated in the quotation from the Encyclopedia of Islam, cited at the outset of this chapter, is the masdar, that is a verbal noun or noun of action of the fourth form of the root SLM, which connotes to submit or to surrender. Islam is thus in the first semantic instance in action. It is something a person does. And it is by doing Islam that a person makes himself or herself in terms of that act or more properly array of acts, including, of course, thought acts, a Muslim. Oh, that's a pretty cool paragraph or a cool sentence, huh? That Islam is first and foremost an action. Your actions are your Islam. It's not very dawa, dawa-oriented <laughs> uh, paragraph. Right? Yeah. So, okay, let's continue. We have seen in our treatment of the <coughs> six diagnostic questions, as well as in the sundry examples presented above, that the history of Islam is in its most mature, expansive, and powerful phase, in its most 
mature, expansive, and powerful phase has been dominated by societies in which Muslims made themselves Muslims, thought of themselves as Muslims, and lived as Muslims in quite contrary ways. In other words, these Muslims made Islam, thought Islam, and lived Islam in quite contrary ways. These societies in which Muslims who took Hikmat al-Ishraq and Wahdatul Wujud... So Hikmat al-Ishraq is the illumination philosophy, and Wahdatul Wujud is the other... the the uh, the akbar thing where you become unified with god as means to the as means to the meaning of divine truth and muslims who condemn condemned hikmat al-ishraq and wahdat al-wujud as rank heresy and muslims for whom to be a sufi was to subordinate to the sharia and to, to subordinate the sharia to the haqiqah and muslims for whom to be a sufi was to subordinate the haqiqah to the sharia so he's saying you know, we saw all of this right all of this is there okay continue muslims who prohibited the consumption of wine and the production of figural images and muslims who celebrated both the consumption of wine and the production of figural images live face to face and side by side the foregoing examples of contradiction are all in the instances of workings out and indeed workings in of the act of Islam, that is, of articulating the act, state, condition, and meaning of being Muslim. Clearly, simply honing in on the dictionary definition of the fourth form of the root SLM, namely submission to God, does not in and of itself get us very far in helping us to conceptualize this contradictory range of articulated meanings and self-constitutions as Islam. Okay, so this paragraph is something about what we've been seeing throughout the entire text, right? That... In Islamic history, you have all these different people that are self-identifying as Muslim. And the point that he's emphasizing, in their actions, they're, they're being Muslim, yet they're contradicting each other. Raising the question again, what is Islam? Uh, let's see. Um, how are you guys doing? You want to continue? Okay, let's continue. But even as we attend to the often neglected fact that the objective, no, object phenomenon Islam we are seeking to conceptualize is, in the first instance, action by the individual human subject and agent, we must also recognize that Islam is also something that exists beyond and outside the individual human agent as an external and extrapersonal phenomenon. Out there in the world beyond the individual Muslim is something that this Muslim recognizes as Islam. And to do Islam, to make him herself a Muslim, the individual must engage with that received external something that he or she recognizes as Islam. This Islam beyond the individual is reposed in the variegated, variegated. variegated discourses and practices of the community of Muslims, Ummat al-Muslimin, and by identifying him herself as a Muslim and by engaging with this external Islam when making his or her internal Islam. The individual Muslim is also establishing a more or less negotiated relationship of his or her communal identity and his or her belonging with the Muslim Ummah. Okay, so I think that's much more true in a Muslim majority population, right? Uh, because I can live a long life in Chicago uh, as a Muslim without very much interaction with the Muslim community and not realize that I'm missing out on the Muslim community. So I had a student who visited today who's a first year who asked if they're a Muslim student who asked if there's an MSA on campus, right? And so I had to approach me today too really? at the work fair. They're oh, like, wow. "How do I get involved in MSA?" I was like, "You just are a Muslim." When you hit him with that, you were like, "You just touched him in the heart." And then you're like, <laughs> "You are your sister's a whore." No, anyway, so <laughs> so so the point being that um, if you're a Muslim in a Muslim majority society, then you're going to be walking by Muslims who are doing things. You're going to be walking by mosques and, and such. Uh, I don't think that's as prevalent here, except maybe in a place like Devon, or where else? Where else is there a super Bridgeview. concentrated Bridgeview? Mm -hmm. You know, where you have a super concentrated or like population. MCC or something. Yeah, maybe if you're near something like MCC. Yeah. yeah. Or MEC Morton Grove, I guess. Scobies, yeah. Like let's say you lived in the Morton Grove neighborhood, yeah. the MEC neighborhood, um, then you're going to have a negotiation with with this external Islam thing, which is with the conglomeration of everything that you have in the community. So I think that's definitely true if you're a Muslim growing up in a Muslim-majority land, um, that your Islam is a negotiation. I don't think that's as much here, as um, except maybe even you can say that to some degree online, your Islam is a negotiation with your what you find online about Islam and such. So. In a yet further third dynamic, Islam beyond the individual or Islam in the Ummah is, of course, precisely the cumulative 
variegated, integrated, and differentiated product of the Islam acts of innumerable Muslim individuals. In the process of making himself or herself Muslim, the individual makes a discursive and praxial statement of Islam that is that individuals answer to the question, what is Islam? An answer that partially or wholly conforms to or dissents from some previous answer that is available out there. Okay, so basically, what are we saying here? That everyone is answering the question for themselves, what is Islam, by the way they practice their Islam, right? So in this room, we might have five different answers to that question. If you look at how we individually practice our lives and, and thus it could be potentially five different answers to this question, what is Islam? We might all agree to some degree on, you know, these are ideal practices, but if I'm continuing my life practicing a particular way, I'm saying the ideal is just something imaginary, right? So look at all those aspects of my life that I haven't changed for the past few years. Okay? I'm essentially saying with my actions, that's okay. With that interpretive action and statement of endorsement or disagreement with the individual Muslim adds to the admixture of variegation, integration, differentiation that is out there as Islam. Simply put, in making him or herself Muslim, the individual Muslim is not making Islam, but also making Islam. What's, what's that sentence mean? Um, it's a cool sentence. <laughs> so Islam with a capital I. They're adding to the, yeah. the milieu? Yeah. To the pot yeah. of meaning. Uh-huh. Now let's do this last paragraph. All of these three elements, namely personal Islam, the elaboration of the discursive and praxial, praxial content of Islam, and the identification with the community of Islam, are co-constitutive of the human and historical phenomenon of Islam. In seeking to conceptualize Islam, we must therefore come to conceptual terms with the structural relationship and processual dynamic between personal acts of Islam, the assembly of these individual acts in the community of Islam, and the diverse elaborations by individuals and communities of the content and meaning of Islam. Okay, so translate (coughs) this gigantic sentence. So we have personal Islam, we have the elaboration of the, uh, elaboration of discursive and practical content of Islam, and the identification of the community. Okay, so the elaboration of discursive and practical content would be explaining what Islam is in theory. And then the community. So we just, if if we want to talk about Islam, we have to kind of, you know, really take stock of these three, yeah, three sort of dynamics and, mm-hmm. and how they interact and how they work, and then mm-hmm. we can kind of say we're talking about Islam as opposed to mm-hmm. maybe looking at one. Yeah. So, so essentially, he would be saying it would not be sufficient to say, okay, here's a Quran and here's a Hadith, and now you have Islam. Because when we look throughout history, as a as Islam as like a I guess as a phenom as a sociological phenomenon. So in terms of Islam as he's describing, it would be a sociological phenomenon, an anthropological phenomenon, right? Uh, As and so that would that would be the realm of what he's calling the discursive and praxial content. Mm. Um, But then, if we're going to look at how did this play out in Muslims' lives, then you got to have you know the community and then individual practice. I, this might get too postmodern, I guess, but um, couldn't couldn't also this sort of um, this sort of descriptive sort of work become part of Islam then, or become a, a strain of it? Like, what does a, that mean? you know, like what he's doing here. Oh, this right? book? Yeah. yeah, totally. You know, because people are gonna he's, read something into this as he's well. He's writing as a Muslim. Yeah, like so. That's it. Yeah, I feel like. You know, because I mean, we already kind of are. Some, I'm sure, some of us. There's things we like. There's things we don't like, and we're sort of like a, you know. It's like wow. Yeah. I love this book. This is yeah. changing my life. Yeah. So like that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah. It yeah. This book is very postmodern, or like it just it reminds me of a lot of like you know, like philosophical works and that, and where they're very much like, there is no answer. There's just a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, and you're like, damn it. All right. Any other thoughts, questions, reflections? I also, I thought of that. Uh, you know how you get Rumi back? You tell him, hey, my sister might be a whore, but she might be super religious too, and she gets to do it because... <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, she could, be, she could be higher level than yeah. Shumsi the Breeze, man. <laughs> so Shums, if Shumsi is, is a river, my sister's an ocean. <laughs> She's an ocean. Yeah. She's a freshwater ocean, yeah, too. No exactly. salt there. Oh, yeah. you know. 
It's like my, my call, man. We're out here. Oh, All right. I like, I like, I like, you know, Omar was thinking about that the whole time. Like, <laughs> no, I, I thought about that because you, you, when you made that last joke about it, I was like, oh, wait, you can say that. Yeah. Like, what if she's a higher level, you know? We haven't even gotten to chapter two. There's Olia everywhere. That's what I, that was taught. We're almost there. We're almost at the end of the chapter. I know. <laughs> so close. Chapter ends on page 108. What page did we just end on? 103. 103. Wow. I want to read his other book that a lot of people read, the, the Before Our Orthodoxy book. That's yeah. like, a lot of is people that? are talking about that. That's my book. I think that might be. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I went through the dissertation that it's based on, and I'm assuming that it's, because the dissertation is written like a dissertation. So it's all kinds of references and this and that. Mm-hmm. And so this, I'm assuming, has much more of a narrative to it. Yeah. Uh, last um, question. So what I've always been wanting throughout, as we've been reading this book, is... So everything is based on like evidence. Like Your argument has to have evidence, right? I just feel like... like isn't orthodoxy so much safer in general because like it has it has textual evidence to support it okay. whereas what they're doing is speculation and I get that they're they <coughs> have a different conception of the actual value of the text but like how did they rationalize so, that so orthodoxy does uh, take into account that many ayahs are metaphor yeah mm-hmm. so wouldn't something even more safe than that be alpha literalism Oh, yeah, come to the Sulphy side, baby. We're out here. We're waiting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, by my logic, yeah, it would be safer. Yeah. That's yeah. why, that's, why, all, why that's also not? why there's a trend of, we, we yeah. you know, we've always had a historical trend of that, right? Like the Hanbalis and stuff right. like that. So why is it not safer? Why is the uh, literalist approach not safer? That and then also the other. Because there are ayahs that are speaking <laughs> metaphor, right? Mm. And so, so the challenge is that it is a community process of interpretation, right? That which we call tradition is all these people arguing back and forth, mm-hmm. right? Agreeing, disagreeing, and such. Mm-hmm. And then so you see this, this thread developing of where there's agreement and then boundaries and such. And, and so, um, so orthodoxy is that, right? So mm-hmm. orthodoxy is not a bunch of people lining up and saying, these 20 answers are, are, are the right yeah, answer, right. right? It's, it's, they're agreeing with these parameters of the conversation. Okay. Right? They're right. delineating they're also boundaries. They're trying to figure out what is this time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, in the time of the Prophet, was there a community interpretation of Islam, or was it just his word? Well, you definitely had points where there was a question at hand, mm-hmm. and you had... The Prophet, you know, giving an answer, Abu Bakr giving an answer, Omar giving an answer, and sometimes Omar was correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Was that a repeated phenomenon, or was that that one incident? So there's there's 15 cases of of Omari ayahs. Okay. Right. But can you say that those? I mean, according to the tradition, anyway, that like what whichever answer was given, like there was a directive from God as to which was the right one. So, so that there it was confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. still. I mean, uh, whether it's a uh, straight and narrow is a different point. Yeah. Right. But the point being that uh, there's many points beyond the Quran of deliberation and disagreement yeah. and such, right? I mean, even even if it's a Sahaba, right? Like that, you know, you mm-hmm. see like. All I mean, these that's that's Sunni Islam. Sunni yeah. Islam is not just the Prophet who's done; it's the yeah. Prophet and the Sahaba. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what we say that you know they all they all had different different sort of viewpoints mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? Alright, we'll stop here. Subhanakullahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfirukana tubi ilaik wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.